Derek Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. When we talk about graphic design that, quote, breaks the rules, what do we think of? Often the work we imagine would be considered experimental or postmodern or hard to understand, or maybe we just think that it's bad or wrong. In many ways, when we talk about the rules of graphic design and how we do and do not break them, we return to these binaries of classic and experimental or modern and postmodern. And this is why the work of the London-based graphic designer Fraser Buggeridge for the last 20 years has been so interesting to me. Fraser runs a studio in London called Fraser Muggeridge Studios, and his work purposefully and sometimes obviously breaks the rules of what we call good graphic design, yet it does not feel experimental or postmodern at all. It's also not classic or modern or Swiss. It's somehow all of those things and none of those things. He'll purposefully mix up printing techniques or mix and match typefaces, sometimes within a single line of text. These interventions can be subtle, but they give a depth to the work, whether that's a book or a poster or a website, that feels fresh in a world where so much visual design looks the same. Frazier recently codified and articulated his process in a PhD he recently finished at RMIT in Melbourne called A Knowing Wrongness, Innovation in Graphic Design Through Combinations of Traditional Mastery and Deliberately Unconventional Techniques. And this PhD, to me, speaks to so many of the areas of importance in contemporary graphic design and also runs through all of Frazier's work, whether that's the process-driven work he's doing in the studio to the Typography Summer School, the week-long typography program he founded in 2010, to his other teaching and curatorial activities. And it's here that we begin this conversation. We talk about what unknowing wrongness means and how he arrived at this approach. This leads to a conversation about process, about mock-ups, about design thinking, and about the cultural value of design. We close the conversation talking about teaching and the role of teaching in his work and the ideas behind the Typography Summer School. If you'd rather read the interview, a transcript for this episode, as with all of our episodes, is available to our Patreon supporters. Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you who help support the show each month. Supporters get bonus interviews, an exclusive monthly newsletter, and other uh, additional content each month. Students can support the show for just $3 a month, and we offer additional tiers at $5 and $10 a month. You can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and get immediate access. Thank you for listening, and here is my conversation with Fraser Muggeridge. So you, last year, I guess, finished your a PhD at RMIT in Melbourne, and the name of your, your PhD was called Unknowing Wrongness, Innovation mm. in Graphic Design Through Combinations of Traditional Mastery and Deliberately Unconventional Techniques. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what this idea of unknowing wrongness means to you. Yeah, I guess, it, you know, it, the name came about, you know, via doing the PhD. So it mm. wasn't something that I started to... Um, with that idea, I suppose, obviously, a practice-based PhD is looking at your work, looking at your practice, and trying to figure out, you know, why you do something, what are the drivers, what are the, uh, you know, what are the 
the things you're trying to get across. And I suppose, you know, before I started that process, you know, I remember in my first presentation, uh, I kind of said, oh, I just did it because I felt like it, you know, and, um, you know, that's kind of what I used to think. And then I suppose this kind of, uh, you know, interrogation of yourself, call it graphic design therapy, you can call it that, uh, sort of led to this, this, um, notion of 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 wrongness in the work or wrongness in the work that I was deliberately putting in or knowingly putting in and I suppose it really came about through you know my education uh which was um in the early 90s I went to Reading University studied typography and graphic communication and you know we were very much taught how to do things right and I think um I came out of that course um with a good understanding or a basic understanding of how to do things right and i probably spent 10 years when i started my studio of doing things right and then i guess that kind of gradually turned into doing things right but then subverting that in a kind of knowing way so that the sort of wrongness comes through making something right or making something look good and then and then kind of breaking it but breaking it in a um i suppose in an intelligent way of of kind of communicating that something's wrong with the work and i suppose i've been interested in that for maybe the last 10 12 years because i've often found that you know we're all using the same tools and programs and typefaces so how how could i you know be unique or be different or just do things a bit wrong so things weren't lined up. You know, I often talk about to line up or not line up and this idea of lining some things up and not lining others up and how do you decide and, you know, how do you do that in a kind of uh, deliberate way rather right. than just looking wrong. Right. Where do you think that sort of impulse to do something wrong came from in your work? I think it's interesting that you said you like, you know, you learned the right way and you yeah. worked for 10 years doing things the right way. And you yeah. sort of had this desire to like subvert that. And I see that in my own work too. You know, I learned all this traditional typographic methodology yeah. and like the more I did it, the more I was like, well, why? Why? You know, it was like a kind of questioning all those old old masters was that was it similar for you was it like it had become too easy where why why do you want to start subverting that i think yeah in some ways it had become too easy with yeah. you know typefaces becoming so much better designed and with so many um automated things that it became kind of yeah a bit too easy so a lot of it was sort of trying to intentionally make it hard for myself to you know rather than use one font why don't we use a hundred fonts on a page right right and so it came from a, a desire to keep myself interested but I think it also came from working with artists who often would uh challenge my rightness and and mm. um kind of send me things or push me into things that I normally wouldn't do and so that was a big influence like the, the people we were working with or the people I was working with 
so that was a, definitely a driver. And I suppose the, an, another driver was just my interest in, in the history of graphic design and collecting, you know, historical uh, right. literature on the subject or actually collecting um, artist books, you know, maybe from the 60s and the 70s that were maybe designed by artists who didn't have a... Um, training in graphic design so you know for example uh Vosch Vosdell from uh, from Germany was was an artist and he made a lot of uh work and you know people like Richard Constanaletz mm-hmm. if I pronounced that right so they they're kind of studying that work and you know maybe they were doing it a bit um uh, you would say uh wrong from a graphic design point of view but just some of the decisions they made or the, the combinations or the technology at the time, I was very much kind of driven towards. So it was a kind of combination of right. myself finding it too easy, working with current artists that would challenge me and looking at historical um, artists that would make graphic design, of which there are, you know, kind of many. I even did a show called Towards an Alternative View of Graphic Design or Towards an Alternative History of Graphic Design, which kind of poked that question. Um, And I suppose it was also to try and be a bit different rather than to reference something that maybe wasn't referenced in the canon of graphic design. To reference something else meant that I could kind of claim that in a way or, you know, people wouldn't know the original reference. I mean, it's... What's interesting to me, and I'm going to be a little bit reductive in what I'm about, about to say, mm-hmm. but hopefully I can sort of, you know, extrapolate on it a little bit, is often when people talk about learning the rules, learning mm-hmm. the right way to do something and then breaking it, that sort of devolves into this sort of like 90s debate about like modernism and postmodernism. You know, there's yeah. the there's the, the Swiss grids and then there's the like layered you know, sort of crazy work. And what I appreciate about the way you're talking about this and what I appreciate about your work is that it sort of doesn't fall into either of those two categories no. that are these like lingering categories that we still talk about. It's either modern or it's or it's postmodern. And so some of the ways that you do knowing wrongness, and, and you mentioned some of these already, is like swapping out typefaces that look kind of similar. So they're all just like a little bit, you know, you use two like, you know, Sarah, sans serifs that are like yeah. slightly, you know, same kind of X height, but you'll swap yeah. the E's or something like that. Yeah. Um, or you'll sort of mess with printing techniques and you'll print something in a way that it shouldn't be printed. And I'm wondering if you could talk about sort of how you think about those processes in in the work. Is that something, I, I guess the question that I'm asking is, is that something that like, that's for you? Or is that something, Do the are the clients aware that you're doing this? Is this is this some sort of like authorship gesture? Because some of these, some of these little interventions that you do are very, very subtle. And I'm sort of wondering yeah. how you think about that. Um, often in terms of, you know, purely visual in terms of type, you know, I might not even mention it to the client. Interesting. Um, and sometimes, you know, they might even mark up, you know, the, the, a proof and say that the comma looks a bit weird. Right, you know, right. That is the wrong font. And 
so I have had those situations, but often, um, you know, it's very much built into what the book's about. So for example, you know, we did a book quite early, maybe in 2013 or 2014 on William Burroughs, you know, of course it's so obvious to use the cut up and, you know, the kind of idea of, of using a typeface that does the same thing, uh, became quite, you know, obvious. And it was, you know, an idea that was very much part of it. Similarly with a kind of, I don't know, with Vivian Westwood book that we made, uh, you know, we did a sort of similar kind of thing, but a bit more sort of evoking a kind of punk attitude. Right, so right. It, sometimes it's, um, I suppose I'm trying to do when, when I'm combining fonts together in a kind of mega font, I call it. Um, you know, I'm sort of trying to evoke in many ways uh, bad printing, you know, which often happened in the letterpress area when, you know, the type wasn't set. Uh, entirely flush so you've got some characters a bit bolder than right. others um so i was often trying to kind of evoke that kind of feeling um and in terms of you know print production when you talk about you know printing things wrong or combining different techniques you know i i really believe in in the power of uh you know, knowing what printing is, you know, I've, I've spent a long time right. uh, going to printers, really understanding, um, you know, the process of printing, what it is, how something's imposed on a sheet, how could you use imposition as a kind mm-hmm. of creative thing, you know, partly due to economy, um, to, you know, reuse the insides as a cover and overprint or, um, swap things out on press or really bring a kind of uh, knowledge of printing and the technology in, in a sort of dialogue with a printer. Because again, you know, the standard of books production has, you know, increased a lot as right. things get better, things get uh, higher res, printing is is better for colour and I'm trying to kind of interrupt that or interfere with that sometimes um, to make things more economical, sometimes for visual effects and sometimes um, as a kind of big kind of concept of, of what the, the project is. Um, so there's sort of many, many reasons kind of why it's done and i suppose the other reason is to increase kind of variation right this idea of you know printing being or lithography being a uh a process where every copy is identical i'm always you know interested in kind of making every copy not identical right um you know maybe you can sell it as a special edition idea or just that people get a, a different version than you, than, you know, than others. So it's just this idea of, you know, uh, bespokeness or individuality right. in the actual printed product. That goes back to something that you said earlier that I wanted to hear you talk more about and sort of this, uh, 
this idea that we're all using the same tools now and that's leading yeah. to a sort of visual sameness, which I agree with. I've heard you before in, in lectures talk about this idea of like the tyranny of the template. Um, yes. and, and I think there is this sort of general like visual malaise in design, right? Where, you know, yeah. where a lot of things look the same. And even to go back to my sort of reductive modernist, postmodernist sort of intersection, even those things, you know, even things that were once considered postmodern become a type of style where everything yes. starts to just generate more. And what's interesting to me is that designers have always sort of used similar tools. Um, you know, what is it about yeah. these new tools that sort of encourage this visual sameness? Or do you have thoughts on what it is about you know, maybe, maybe to be, to oversimplify this sort of digital technology that sort of encourages this type of sameness? Uh, I suppose it's because it's, it, first it's global, you know, mm -hmm. you talk about, you know, Adobe's dominance of, uh, of that software and we're all using that. And um, I suppose it's also, you know, it's also the internet. It's also people looking at references uh, uh, yeah. massively and, and kind of, which again would have been, you know, still common, uh, you know, in, in history, but it's so much more um, easy to, to look at references. And, and I see it a lot in student work as well when I teach is that, you know, a way to approach a project often is looking at examples of referencing and but not actually dealing with what you're doing so i i try to sort of encourage to sort of work through the process and it's that it's in a way it's sort of having the confidence to to kind of you know work with the content work with the material rather than think and discuss and debate what it's gonna look like Mm -hmm. um, I, I really try and encourage, you know, young designers to not worry about what it's going to look like, but but just sort of try and, and work through the process. You use the printer as a tool. You know, we, we constantly, constantly print out here at the studio. Um, and I think a lot of reasons why people don't do it is because it's sort of committing to something. It's sort of uh -huh. out of, of, of the machine and onto paper and, that's going to get judged. Um, but really it's about um, having confidence to a knowledge. You know, I talked a little bit about knowledge before. Have the knowledge of why you're using a, a certain print process or why you're using a certain font or why you're arranging this material in, in, a, in a particular way. Uh, harking back to something else or trying to evoke a feeling. and Right. I think it's about looking, you know, it's often about seeing things. And of course, when you're young and inexperienced, you see things in a different way, um, partly through inexperience, but maybe the time in your life. And I think after, you know, a certain amount of practice and a certain amount of, of jobs that you've done, you look at things in a different way. And that's why I think I'm so interested in history. Right. So interested in, uh, what's happened in the past that I can sort of use that in a kind of productive way in my work. I'm not 
I'm not trying to ape the past. I'm not trying to create right, uh, right. facsimiles of history or pastiches in any way. I think that's uh, not a progressive way, but sort of using these techniques. And often, you know, these techniques, you know, wouldn't explain to the client or I wouldn't explain uh, to myself. They're just, they're very much used as a way of making a decision. And that's really really difficult for a lot of designers and and really you know design is about making a series of decisions you know working through that rather than you know making one decision it's making a series of decisions that inform the work that you know create some kind of productive or production artifact this makes me think of two other sort of semi-related I don't know what you'd call them, maybe issues in in contemporary design that I wonder if it also contributes to this sameness. And one of them is um, when you were talking about your students, I started thinking about this with my students, is this sort of proliferation of mock-up culture. Um, A couple of years ago, my students, I would ask for just like a PDF of their final design and my students just on their own started mocking them up on real books or on the mm. street, you know, this, this sort of uh, mm. simulation of reality mm. that, that I can't mm. help but wonder is some sort of reaction to everything being done digitally. Um, and so this idea of you can basically produce something and show it to people all from the same screen and you don't get that physicality anymore. And, or it and doesn't I, have to be made in the, or it doesn't actually right. have to exist. Right, right. And you can see, you know, you can see they all get the same mock-ups from the same mm. websites, mm. Uh, too. And that, that sort of suggests that, that reality. And then the other thing that I was thinking about is this sort of the, like, business of design and the sort of increased awareness of design and the rise of design thinking and, this, and human-centered design, the sort of move from design as a type of cultural practice to a type of problem solving, um, you know, where everything yeah. is sort of about selling something, if that sort of removed some of that kind of visual innovation in some way. Do you have thoughts on on that at all? Definitely on 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 mock-ups, you know, um I tend not to do them. Uh, <laughs> I do have an interesting uh experience maybe the I, I did have an interesting experience of it once where we were doing a poster for the Barbican in London and um the poster was in black and white. Okay. And the client, I think, I, I kind of knew the client would just get nervous about it. You know, I don't know why I knew. I think it's because it was black and white. And mm-hmm. they sent me an email saying, we just want to see, we just want to see this poster uh, mocked up <sighs> on a wall with other posters right. around it. Right. Just, 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 you know, so we can sort of judge whether, you know, we're, we're going to approve it. And you know, my, the alarm bell started, started ringing. And yeah. what I did, which was, I don't know, it was, I'm not sure if it would, it was a good idea or not, but uh, I actually printed the poster out. I tiled it, you know, using A4 sheets. It was a yeah. really big poster. It's like a, a tube poster. So it was, you know, taller than me. And I took, uh, stuck it together with sellotape. So real one. Uh-huh. I took it, I took it to the underground station and I, pasted it or I stuck it over another poster and kind of nearly got thrown out of the tube station because the, you know, the guards were like, what's that called? Right. Yeah. 
And then I got the person that was working in our studio to go on the other platform to take a picture of it with me sitting on the bench like, right. next to it in a kind of, um, you know, kind of generic normal person. And then I sent it to the client and I was like, here's, here's, here's the mock-up. But it was a real photo. Right. And because I think they then approved it. I kind of think they approved it because they thought that I've taken so much care and effort to actually right. print it out, actual size, go down, put it on the wall, take a picture. You know, I didn't say it was it even had me in it. I just kind of said, oh, here's, here's the image. And to me, that was like a real life situation. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, it, it, it kind of justified it kind of justified the work in a, in a way. Um, in terms of your, you know, your 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 other question, I think you might have to repeat it. So I sort of have an opinion on it. You were talking about design thinking. Yeah, and I'm not sure if this is related or not. No. But as as you as you were talking about, I kept thinking about this sort of over the last I don't know ten fifteen years. This sort of business of design has grown where corporations talk about being design driven design sort of has this power i hesitate to use that word uh it's like a a buzzword for a lot of people and and with that is the rise of design thinking the rise of like user experience or or human-centered strategy exactly that that it has sort of design has moved from something that was a sort of cultural endeavor to something that is strictly problem solving. How can design come in and solve this thing? Has that sort of removed a lot of this visual innovation or this attention to process because everything has become so structured? There's now a process that every designer can just go through yeah. and you get the, you know, what is that? How does that relate to this? It seems like there's some connection well, there. It, yeah, it relates in a way of um, certain projects don't go well with us. So for example, you know, maybe, you know, I don't think um, certain organizations, uh, you know, talk about branding or um, systems uh, or templates or uh, approaches. And, you know, we did have a comment, um, which I'll read to you. Uh, we did Uh-oh. a pitch for a, a, a proposal uh, maybe a, a couple of months ago, and the the feedback that we got from the the client, and this was a this was a proposal without any meeting, without any even online meeting or any questions, and the the, the comments of uh, from the from the potential <laughs> client was but overall felt that the studio's approach would generally be more unique than other submissions. Hmm. So that was kind of described as a negative thing where I would obviously assume that that should be a positive thing. Right. So my conclusion for that is this idea of risk, risk averse and of course, it depends what you're doing. It depends what the project is. It depends what the budget is. So, of course, it's it's a, a, a safer option. And I think clients are, you know, more worried about risk, especially if it's you know working with a new designer. So, of course, you know, often our work involves working with people that we've 
you know, built a relationship over uh, a few projects or a number of years. So there's that trust. So th- to me, that's a massively important part of design now is the, the dialogue, the conversations with a client and the trust that you can take some form of uh, visual risk. Uh, which you know some a lot of clients are still prepared to take and that's I guess why some of the work is uh, that gets through looks like that and the the less risky work maybe uh, you know can be allocated to other designers or other clients that that want something that that you know is is uh, less risky what's really interesting to me you know you're talking about like your students wanting them to sort of get to know the process as opposed to just looking at mm. other works, just sort of immediately going to the end result, going to the mock-up even. Um, mm. And what I'm sort of hearing from you is that y- your process is really dependent on the project and the client, that there yeah. is no set process. And no. I'm wondering how you approach this work and how you approach even this idea of a knowing wrongness across different types of clients or different types of projects, whether it's a small kind of cultural client, an artist, or, you you know, you recently did titles to a Taylor Swift video. How does that process change depending on the type of client or how does the client or the project influence the process? It doesn't really change. It's, Mm. it's, 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 uh, you know, a similar a similar process so for example those um, movie credits you know when i when i sort of showed them i ultimately did a kind of 45 minute talk about Matera books with taylor and and we and, and 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 showed one of the scanned typefaces that we ended up using for the titles oh wow i didn't do a presentation um so it's very much you know, personal, uh, showing the source and not really showing the finished thing, more like showing the, the ideas. And, you know, I'm right, definitely guilty right. of being very unprofessional in a way <laughs> and, you know, texting a screenshot of something that I've just done you know, at 10 o'clock at night to, to someone and kind of, you know, being, uh, excited by it. I suppose that's what I'm trying to do is get that uh, right. excited connection rather than a, a, a presentation that you know, has my name on every page. I find that quite uh, tedious, but I'm also guilty that sometimes I should be playing that game a bit more to, mm. to, to, to win these jobs. So I'm, I'm sort of kind of, you know, professional and unprofessional in terms of how I present things. And I suppose that then filters into the work, you know, kind of super amateurish at the same, but then at the same time, I'm actually really super professional and I super care about what I do. And I care about, you know, every, every line length, a line, you know, line ending, you know, obsessively. So it's that kind of mix of the two that really is the process of, of making and that I suppose, you know, one of the reasons why, why it's important for me to know about how something is produced is that you can then play with that. Mm -hmm. So of course, you know, um, you know, I have a 
big understanding of you know litho or screen printing and because I've been there and I've talked to printer and I've done it myself and and I'm sort of always trying to use that you know I'm trying to gain knowledge from them or gain knowledge from myself to then use in a creative way to me that's what you know design is you know when they talk about design thinking to me to me it is thinking about uh what's an appropriate approach and how you can break that approach and how you can do it in a, you know, you can often do that in a very visible way in a very kind of bold visual way, or you can do that in a very invisible way. And that maybe becomes a structure for the, for the publication or for the project. Mm -hmm. I often think when I talk about processes, I often you know, someone, if there's a brief or a project and it says, I don't know, design a logo, you know, say for example, I very much never design a logo. I always try and just do things that are around that subject that enables me to design a logo. Right. So even if someone says to me, design a book, I don't design a book. I do a few tests or do some experiments or you know, draw a diagram of, the, uh, uh, I call it a paper engineering diagram, draw a diagram of the structure of a book that then gives you, I suppose what I'm trying to do is trying to, to often give myself constraints because, of course, you know, we're in a world where maybe there aren't any constraints anymore. And right, right. that's hard to make a decision, you know, right. even if you're the you know most knowledgeable person in the world, you still have to make a decision. So I really want the process to make a decision for me. That's a knowing wrongness again. Yeah. Cr creating yeah. constraints, using, yeah. you know, knowing, having that knowledge so you can break it, texting the client at 10 p.m., you know, being unprofessional, knowingly unprofessional. That's all a type of, of knowing wrongness. Let me yeah. ask you this. This is maybe a really sort of dumb question, but why get a PhD? Like, why go through this sort of process to uncover these processes in your own work and did that then change the work going forward do you think doing this sort of self-reflection yes. or this therapy change you and your process yeah it very much became a kind of uh, a live laboratory mm -hmm. so i would you know i would um you know say you know look into the history of uh manipulating type and then that would the results of that would be fed straight into a project almost before i've done the research so the research mm. and the practice was kind of going hand in hand so it definitely enriched my knowledge and enriched the way that i could explain it to clients you know i think that was a really big help the process of trying to work out why i did things really or I, the way I could articulate a problem or articulate a solution mm -hmm. almost to myself and to my clients through um, the process of a PhD. And I suppose it also really, um, you know, I think I feel that before I did the PhD, I was, you know, I was, you know, I've done a, um, you know, dipping my toes into writing or dipping my toes into curating or putting on shows or mm -hmm. doing events. And I suppose it kind of really, it, it, it kind of gave me a framework. You know, I suppose most people would say uh, the same. It kind of gave me a, 
a reason it gave me a name it, it you know doing you know proper ways to you know reference things or to interview someone or you know ethics mm-hmm. all these kind of things that you go through that you then can use again in your you know since since the phd so I, of course i found it uh, immensely helpful to to kind of use you know res- you know practice based research into practice and right. uh quite rare i think in yeah quite rare i suppose a phd in graphic design is still a quite a rare thing yeah um you know but it's it's incredibly uh incredibly helpful as a sort of way of you know i i don't particularly you know use the, the title of what that's become uh much but i feel that uh i much more realize what i'm doing i want to shift gears a little bit and talk about teaching which has come up a little bit throughout this but it seems like teaching is so central to your work you found it you, you've taught at a variety of schools you founded the typography summer school uh, yes. 12 13 years ago at this point how does teaching influence the studio work and vice versa what do you get from from teaching i think my teaching has sort of changed over the years i think when i started to teach you know which was a long time ago it would have been in 2005 i think i kind of sort of had this uh notion that you know everyone should do it like i do it uh, or everyone should just <laughs> basically try and clone my style um, which you know isn't actually that helpful or useful because of course you know the the idea of teaching is for designers to find their own way um i found it i found it useful to you know when i when i taught at camberwell college of i think it's called camberwell college of art I, i really felt that that was in many ways like going back to art school because it was so different to Reading, which was very much a, mm. a university and a typography mm-hmm. department. And going to Camberwell kind of re um, reinvigorated my or re-educated me in uh, you know screen printing or making or hey let's you know make some clothes or you know do something that is yeah outside the normal of, of of what a graphic designer can do so i suppose a lot of the projects were projects that i kind of wanted to do myself that was really the uh the, the kind of the driving force at that time and i suppose you know sometimes you know i think in 2010 you know when i sort of started the idea of a, of a typography summer score i kind of felt that I would sometimes get, you know, have students for interviews, for jobs or internships. And I kind of often used to think that, you know, we they could talk quite well, they could uh, critique things quite well, but could they actually do anything quite well? <laughs> I know that sounds, that sounds harsh, but it was often the case, especially at MA level, you almost become unemployable. And right, right. I, I, I kind of felt, well, that's so different from my education. So I, I, I literally thought, well, what would happen if I could get you know, a bunch of students in a room for a week and um, teach them um, you know, things that predominantly I had learned? And 
you know, with input from, you know, I felt at the time there was, you know, huge classes of, you know, some of these courses have hundreds of students on and, you know, they have such limited tutor time. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if you did something small with 20 people and, you know, there was a new tutor each day that would give a different opinion. And, you know, that means that someone from another school might be very much following that that tutor mm-hmm. in their school. And I, I just thought it'd be really good to, to, to kind of mix it up and mix the students up. So really that was the, that was a kind of experiment of, could that even be possible? Would anyone actually be interested in doing that? <laughs> and and what would they learn? And and of course, um, you know, for many reasons, uh, it was a success, and it kind of grew grew over the years to also you know partner with with other means mm-hmm. in, in New York to to do it over there. So, but really, it, it was a kind of reaction to the the notion of. Uh, what are people being taught in schools right. and how big the class is. And I, and I, and I kind of felt that the moment for something bit independent that was, you know, a little bit, uh, thrown together, very, uh, homemade, you know, the tables were, you know, made of old, uh, you know, uh, doors or, you know, right. literally sellotaped together. So it's very, uh, sort of anti-corporate but you know i think that obviously attracted certain type of person that thought that that was uh was a good kind of opportunity for them i mean and it's interesting and i didn't i didn't realize this and i I never thought of the typography cyber school as this until you were just describing it but that also Mm. is a type of knowing wrongness you know we come full circle again kind of yeah yeah kind of yeah yeah kind of i suppose it was yeah, the other major sort of force that I was interested in was was this notion of it's something that, that I think about a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm not sure entirely what it's like in the USA because I haven't really done much teaching in the, in the USA, but in the UK and really in Europe, you know, the last year of study is, uh, you know, self-directed pro- projects mm-hmm. for, for students. And that can be, you know, super exciting super uh challenging for for those that have particular interests but to me it can also be very confusing misleading with a lot of time being spent on i don't know researching dreams or mm, mm, uh mm-hmm. things that aren't really related to what you're learning and you know pretty much 99% of the jobs that we do at the studio are supplied content okay we shape that content we might suggest that content so i was very much into the idea of giving students a challenge giving students some content saying here is the the content and maybe everyone gets the same content yeah so so you're not involved in your critical position on philosophy which is important but i think that also just having those skills to be able to work with content and really that's i struggle when i don't get any content i'm literally like i don't know what to do i, I don't know what to say I, I i feel i don't have anything that i that i want to say particularly whereas i'm saying what i want to say through process materials wrongness through other people so that's a kind of big kind of key thing in the summer school and also what i what i sort of try and teach now well, let me ask you the question that I used to end all of these. I'm curious what you're reading right now. 
Oh, uh, that's a good question. You know, again, I I probably am guilty, like like many, uh, of starting lots of books and not finishing them. The, but the book I'm really interested in at the moment is is one written by Herbert Bayer. I think it's oh. called Visual Communication, oh, Painting, yeah. Sculpture, Architecture. And the reason I'm fascinated by that is not only it has some really great text by Bayer, but really I'm fascinated by that, that it kind of employs this really curious design technique of justified and unjustified at the same time. Oh, interesting. And I don't know if you've ever noticed it or seen it, but it's this system that he uses that isn't really talked about in the book, isn't explained anywhere else. I can't find a review of it. I can't find anyone critiquing it or praising it. I can't find another example of it. But the text is is justified, but if the line doesn't fit or the last word does not fit on that justified line, it's kind of taken over and it's unjustified. So you get this mix of justified and unjustified. So I suppose I'm reading that from a a reading point of view, but partly also a curiosity of of why it's like that. And, you know, it's a big project that I really want to kind of research and find out and course i can make many assumptions and predictions due to technology and you know that's very difficult to do now yeah in the current design software but in photo setting it's probably easier because uh of the way that lines are composed so i'm reading um have a bayer but maybe for all the wrong reasons yeah i mean i love that that is a very fraser muggeridge answer <laughs> to that <laughs> last question uh fraser thanks so much for doing this i'm a big fan of your work and, and really enjoyed the conversation nice to speak to you this episode was recorded on february 22nd 2023 our theme music is by andy borgasani we're on twitter and instagram at surface podcast you can support the show on patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratching the surface.fm thanks for listening mm-hmm.